Welcome to the CTNNB1 Connect and Cure podcast, your go-to place to hear the latest information, research, and happenings going on in the CTNNB1 community. Tune in to find comfort, community, and connection. Like all of our podcasts, we have another very important topic to discuss today. However, this topic isn't just important for CTNNB1 families, but for all individuals struggling to find a correct diagnosis and also specifically for individuals who have received a cerebral palsy diagnosis. Today, I have with me CTNMB1 mom, Ashley Swift. This topic is very close to her heart, so I'm so glad that she is here today to share her story and mission with you. Welcome, Ashley. Hi, thanks for having me, Amy. Yes, I'm so glad that you're here. Thank you for coming on um, and sharing your story with us today. Um, I'd love for you to start with telling us about Evelyn. Um, and how you came to her diagnosis. Okay. (laughs) Brings back a lot of memories thinking about this. Um, So Evelyn, right now she is four. um, And she, so when I was pregnant with her, I, she had trouble growing and then she was always measuring very little. So her head was little. They kept remeasuring her every time I went to get an ultrasound and we did ultrasounds almost weekly just to check for her growth. And so every time I went to get an ultrasound for her, I just remember the ultrasound tech saying, have you done genetic testing with her? And I always said yes. And I thought that was so strange in the back of my head um, because I have another daughter and, you know, that was a different experience. They didn't ask me that. And so when Evelyn was born, I remember the first time um, she came out and I first looked at her, I thought, oh my gosh, her head is really small compared to her body. And every, everybody, all the nurses in there were like, no, she looks very proportionate. Um, but I just thought it, it didn't look great. You know, it just looks smaller than normal. And so for the first two months, well, let me back up too. Um, So after that, she was born and she was doing really good. Her APGAR scores were really good. Um, And then they came in to do the newborn assessment at midnight and the nurse noticed that her color was off. And so they ended up checking her oxygen was in the 70s. And so they transferred her to the NICU and ran all the tests that you could possibly run on her. And she was there for, I think, three to four days. And then they they said everything looked good. Um, She was growing and they sent her home. And so for the first two months, she was doing pretty good. I got a scale and was checking her um, after every feeding to make sure that she was growing. And then once at two months, she started kind of to decline. She had reflux and she just wasn't gaining weight appropriately. And so once we, once we determined that, I think it was about three months, I just noticed that she wasn't meeting some milestones. Um, she was really stiff and rigid. She couldn't hold a bottle, like her arm couldn't even bend. She favored her right side. Her left side was just so weak and just tight. We got referred to the early intervention people. They came, they did an evaluation on Evelyn, and they determined that she fit the criteria just based off of, um, I think they gave her a global developmental delay and then also microcephaly. And so they started us in the program. And about at five months, we started with feeding therapy, occupational therapy, and physical therapy. And so that, you know, was all going really well. 
we saw a couple of doctors and one doctor in particular, I remember they told us, you know, um, Evelyn has cerebral palsy. I'm hundred percent sure she has cerebral palsy. I had talked to some other people that have recommended maybe we should do genetic testing just to find out if anything else was going on with Evelyn. And I will say from a genetic testing standpoint, when we started researching it, it was, it was hard to process. I think the anxiety behind what if something comes back, you know, the potential feeling of guilt or anger or just really being scared because what if my husband and I both gave our daughter this gene and, you know, we can't do anything about that. Like right. we're the one that caused this right. or my husband thought, you know, what if I caused this and you didn't and, you know, are you going to resent me for the rest of her life? Like, what is that going to look like? Are you always going to have this anger for me? And so we really had to talk about it and really, you know, come to the understanding that genetics is really intimidating too, because, you know, I'm not, you know, from a scientific standpoint, um, when you talk about genes and genetics and all of that, I mean, that's intimidating, but, I, you know, I didn't um, go to school for that. And so... It's like a foreign language. It's a, definitely all a that. foreign language, 100%. My husband's best rep, uh, reference point to um, genetics is that scene from the original Jurassic Park where they show the AGCT genes sequencing. And, you know, I'm like, I don't, I mean... That's a dinosaur in the yeah. head, but you know, it's not something that's talked about. It's not, we had never heard of genetic testing before they asked us if we would be interested in trying it. It would never even crossed our mind because no. we didn't know about it. Absolutely. So it, I mean, it's definitely very scary um, for just thinking about it. So, um, but we did decide that, you know, we weighed the pros and cons in that the pros were better um, to help us understand how to help our daughter um, and what the future might look like if we did it. So we did go to a genetic doctor. He said, your chance of finding something is very slim. I want to say he said it was in the 25% range um, that we would even find some things. We were not expecting, you know, to, to get anything back. Um, but we did that genetic testing, I think, maybe sometime in January. And then I remember April 1st, 2020, my phone rings and it's the genetic clinic. And I told my husband we were downstairs with the kids. It was 3.30. And this is in the middle of COVID, too. So we're all home. In April 1st, you said... <laughs> yeah, April 1st, which is also April Fool's Day. Um, so it's, I'll never forget that day. But I went upstairs and took the phone call and they said, Miss Swift, um, you know, this is blah, blah, blah. And we have a positive test that came back for Evelyn and she has CTN and B1 syndrome. And I just remember my heart sinking because I was not expecting anything to come back. I mean, they told us it was very unlikely, but then I got that diagnosis and that also meant that she's never going to grow out of this. And I think there's always that hope that, you know, your child's going to just start meeting their milestones and yes. everything is going to be fine. Like the vision that you had for your family, for your daughter. And that call just led that it wasn't. And so I remember I started Googling it. Um, I put her on speaker and immediately started Googling it. And she told me your best resource is going to be the Facebook group. And I was like, what? The Facebook group? Right. Um, and she just said, you know, there's, this is very rare. So they're really still writing the literature about this, but you know, that, that could be your best resource. And she gave me some other websites as well and started looking through that and 
And, you know, I saw, I just remember looking at pictures of the kids on the Facebook group and I was like, okay, they look, they look pretty normal. They look pretty normal. Like they're happy. And I didn't really know what to expect, but I don't know. I kind of felt a sense of calmness after looking at the pictures and having your answer too. Yeah. So up until this point, they had led you to believe it was CP. Yeah. And that's kind of where you thought you were going. So you thought you had your diagnosis and here you're not even expecting anything. And then something else just got dropped on you. Yeah. And you got to remember, I mean, I had, we had a doctor that told us we were wasting our time and our money not to do genetic testing. Evelyn had a classic cerebral palsy case. And on paper, she really, she had all of the classic symptoms of CP. And so you know, she had oxygen deprivation at birth. Um, and she just had, you know, jerky movements. She had trouble swallowing. She had the dysphagia, spasticity, intellectual disability, speech problems. She walked on her toes. She favored that one side. She had vision issues. So all of those things on paper look really like a classic cerebral palsy case. Did you say some doctors told you to um, not even to do it? Like it was just a waste of your time. They said it's a waste of your time, a waste of your money. Do not do it. She has cerebral palsy. Wow. So what made you go against that then and say, no, like something else is there? Was it just mother's intuition? Yeah, I think in our gut, um, you know, I think doctors see a child for 15 minutes, 20 minutes at a visit, but a mom or a dad or any kind of caregiver they're with that child 24 seven. Right. And the CP, the cerebral palsy diagnosis made sense for a lot of what her, what was going on. But what didn't make sense is that Evelyn had microcephaly. She had the small head. She had trouble growing in utero when I was pregnant with her and just all of those things just didn't make sense. And then I just thought, well, you know, maybe she does have cerebral palsy and that's all that she has, but, you know, insurance was going to cover a lot of it. And so for us, I just thought that's another data point to ensure that we have the right diagnosis right? Um, so that we can truly understand how to help her and what that future looks like, because we really didn't know. I feel like I can relate to that with the autism with Preston. Um, so we never got tested, obviously, for CP. We just did the autism so it, it was like he just checked enough boxes. Then he got the autism diagnosis. But it wasn't till we got the genetic testing till you almost got your real your real why to how everything was going. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. So has there been research now? This is all kind of coming out that we're starting to see a lot of connections between CP and CTNMB1. Has there been any research or studies done to support the connection between the two? Yeah, so when we joined the CTNB1 Facebook group, it was pretty common for people to say, I had a cerebral palsy diagnosis, and then we got genetic testing, and now we have CTNB1 syndrome. Um, so we always heard and saw a lot of that. Um, but there has actually been recent research um, that was done to relate the correlation between both of those. Um, there's an article by Mark Corbett and Seika Kayumi, um, and it shows that CTN and B1 can often be misdiagnosed as cerebral palsy. Um, their study showed that one quarter of CP cases are genetic in nature, nature 
And in their study, CTNMB1 was the most frequently affected gene. Um, that's 4% of all of those diagnoses in a group of 1345 wow. that they, they looked at. So that's incredible. Yes. And, you know, there's right now um, a quick Google search will show you there's like 17 million people in the world that have cerebral palsy. So if you think of that, um, if one quarter of CP cases are genetic in nature and then CTN and B1 was the most frequently affected gene, you know, we probably have a lot more people that are diagnosed with CTN and B1 that just don't know it because they haven't had genetic testing done yet. That's huge. So when all that starts starting to come out that's not just huge for our community which it's like wow there's got to be a lot more out there but it's got to be huge for people with cp to realize hey there may be something more to this have i done genetic testing you know should i because there's a very good likelihood that there's many people with cp that have ctn and b1 after this paper so how should we work on getting this message out to everyone? Because this is really important stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So I created a one-page flyer, and it's got a bunch of links. It's got a link to this recent article um, that I just talked about. And I've just been mailing the neurologist um, in hospitals that specialize in cerebral palsy. Um, I'm really trying to get all to all of them. I'm trying to find their email addresses. Um, a lot of fellowship and residency programs, they list. Um, the director's email addresses. So I've been directing, directly emailing them, but also just mailing those letters. So if anybody wants a copy of the letter, you know, I'll be happy to, to give you a copy of the letter and you can take it to the hospital or your neurologist and just educate them that, you know, if, if they have patients that they think or that have the diagnosis of cerebral palsy, that maybe they should look at their symptoms and consider genetic testing for them. Definitely. That's incredible. It's incredible that you're taking this on kind of as your mission. I feel like everybody kind of finds their little niche within our community and where they feel connected to and passionate about. And I've definitely watched you within our community start to spread this awareness. And this is something that, you know, I know nothing about. So I'm glad we have our own groups within our community that's doing their work and their passion. I feel this is your mission to get this word out about the connection between CTN and B1 and CP. So you also play a huge role in our Simon Search Bites registry. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Um, and why that is also important for our community. Yeah, so Simon Searchlight, they're an international research program, and their goal is accelerating science and improving lives for people with rare genetic neurodevelopmental disorders. So they basically house all of the information on a lot of the rare genetic disorders. Their goal is to take all that information and allow researchers or doctors or anybody, they can get that information and try to find, you know, a drug or therapy that's going to help. So, so the goal is to help, right? Um, whether it be a cure or a drug or something, it's it's to really see how to how to best help children that might have a rare genetic disorder. Um, so right now what I'm doing is any new member that joins the CTNB1 Facebook group, I give them this information. Um, I give them a lot of different resources, but Simon Searchlight is definitely one of them. And just encouraging all of them to, to give us information because we need that information to know how is this 
you know, syndrome, like how are kids going to progress in that later in life? What does that look like when the child is 20 years old? What kind of therapies are they going to need there? Did they try any drugs? Did they work? Did they not work? Um, We're kind of writing the book for genetic community um, right now. So all of the participation that's in there um, and all of the research that's been in there, that's written by us. And so I think it's so important that that information is accurate um, and that we can give as much information as we can. And then, you know, later down the road, if we have, let's say, a drug um, to help our children, pharmaceutical companies, they'll look at how much participation that we have. And, you know, that really helps attract them too. So um, if you're starting to do clinical trials or anything, you obviously want your participation to be good. You know, the goal is just to help our children by finding treatment. So that's why it's so important. So if a family isn't involved yet in Simon's, like, what does that look like? How, what do they need to do? Does it take a lot of work, a lot of time? Does it cost them anything? So it doesn't actually cost them anything. And one of the really cool features of Simon's is that they pay you for your time and they pay you with Amazon rewards. Um, so I think I have like 180 bucks now. Um, every time I take a survey, I get additional money. And who can't find something on Amazon? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Everybody, I'm sure, uh, shops on Amazon, but participation right now for Simon's, it's currently offered in English, Spanish, French, and Dutch, and they're soon going to be offering in Italian, German, and Portuguese, and I know they're constantly always looking at additional languages. But you can, there's about four different steps. You can go to their website. You can upload um, your child's genetic report. If you don't have a copy of your genetic report, there's a form that you can fill out. And then Simon's on your behalf can reach out and get that genetic report for you. And then once you do that, you just attend a short call with a genetic counselor to discuss your child's medical history and then how they're developing. And then you can provide a blood sample if you're interested and um, those are really the, the four steps right there. So it's pretty simple. And then every year they do send you d- additional surveys to, up, you know, make sure that they stay up to date on your child's development. And they'll send you different surveys, you know, maybe a behavior survey of how your kid is or sleep. Um, so they'll do different surveys throughout the year as well. I think those surveys come pretty common for us as parents, whether we're going to the doctors or we're doing Simon's. It's like, I feel like I'm always filling one of those out, but it's, it's awesome because it's following our children and it's seeing how they progress. Yes. So very cool. So something very easy for parents to get involved with, but so very important for our children. Very cool. Wow. So we have, you have shared a lot with us today. (laughs) Correlation between CP and CTN and B1 is something that's on the rise and it's huge right now. So what would you say to a parent that says, my child has a CP diagnosis or even an autism diagnosis? Why isn't that enough? Why should I pursue genetic testing? What would you say to them? So for me, um, I would probably tell them a story. So with Evelyn getting the CTNMB1 diagnosis, and once we joined the CTNMB1 Facebook group, There was all of these people that were saying, hey, um, my child had a tethered spinal cord or my child has fever, FEVR, where their retinas detach. And so all of those things that aren't yet on all the literature, but they were in the Facebook group. Um, So I actually, Evelyn was going under, I think she was getting her adenoids and ear tubes um, 
replaced. And so she was going under anesthesia. And so I got with a pediatric neurosurgeon and um, we did a quick meeting. And I just said, there's a lot of kids that are having this tethered spinal cord. And Evelyn had always had an MRI of the brain, but never of the spine. And so they, they looked at the data and they said, you know, it's, it's not in the research that it's part of the syndrome. However, like, let's go ahead. She's already going under. Now's a good time just to recheck her brain and do another MRI and then do one of the spine. And so they did one of the spine and she immediately called me. She saw it on her phone and she was like, Evelyn has a tethered spinal cord. And, you know, tethered spinal cord is really important that if you have that diagnosis, you get it taken care of when they're really young, um, Mm -hmm. because otherwise it can cause permanent nerve damage or pain. And Evelyn's nonverbal, so I don't know if she was in pain, but we ended up doing the surgery and we've had great results from that. So before I used to pick up Evelyn from the crib after a nap and she was so tight and she would just cry. And that was her obviously in pain. And obviously that mm-hmm. spinal cord was pulling. Um, if I did not know that Evelyn had CTNMB1, I would never have known to ask for them to check for a tethered spinal cord. And so for me, having the, the right diagnosis um, allowed me to help her in the surgery. I mean, she was super young when she got it. And so she's just progressed a lot, you know, better. She's not as tight. You know, there, there's so many things that she's able to do, like her fine motor skills have improved. And I really think it has, it relates to that, that spinal cord being pulled. And so, um, you know, I'm really thankful that other families shared that information so that we, we could get that. Um, and now, um, Simon's, they actually have a bunch of tethered spinal cord. And so, you know, like I said, we're all writing the data, um, for our children. And so, but it, you know, that, that community, if I wouldn't have known her true diagnosis, I wouldn't have known to be on the lookout for that. So, um, same right. thing with the fever where their retinas detached. I mean, if the retinas detach, a child can go blind and, and, you know, go blind in the eye or both eyes. And so knowing that that's part of a diagnosis allows you to know to look for that or to ask for that, to advocate that for your child. Um, because a lot of times, you know, our kids, um, Evelyn's nonverbal. She can't tell me that stuff if she's in pain. And so that's where I really need to utilize um, other parents in the research and um, right. knowing what they've gone through to know how to advocate for her. So knowledge is power. And I think that's the message we want to get out today, that knowledge is power. There's a power in a diagnosis. And especially if your child's nonverbal, like you said, she can't tell you when she's in pain. So when you are seeing different things, it can you can look to the Facebook group and say, this is going on. And you know specifically the parents to ask to get your answers from because the doctors don't even know yet. Yep. So knowledge is power. I would love for you to end with why you feel that is and why we're encouraging families to find their diagnosis today. Yeah, I mean, I think the diagnosis is so powerful. Um, I think it just helps understand what the future holds for you. It helps for you to know what to be on the lookout for. It helps to know what therapies are working, what kind of drugs might help, you know, just how best to advocate for your child. Um, But there's also a feeling of support being in the right group. Um, So once I join that CTN and B1 Facebook group and have talked to a bunch of other parents, I think there's, you know, we're all going through the same thing, but, you know, just that fence 
I guess that sense of family um, and, and instant bond that has really um, helped me, I think, um, you know, grieve as well with, with getting a diagnosis. So I just say if, if you're, if you're considering doing genetic testing, you know, definitely talk to your doctor, um, but advocate, you know, your child best. And, you know, if, if your child can't advocate for themselves, it's, you know, the parents. And so, you know, it can be hard, but at the end of the day, it's definitely, they need us to do that for them. Definitely. Thank you so much for coming on today. I love learning more and I've learned a lot through you and watching you on Facebook and you're definitely getting this mission out and the word out to everyone about how important it is for genetic testing, about the connections between CTN, MB1 and CP. So I look forward to this message getting out and reaching others and spreading more awareness about this subject. Thank you, Annie. I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you so much. We'll talk to you later. Okay, bye. All right, bye. Thank you for listening today. This has been the CTNNB1 Connect and Cure podcast, a place for CTNNB1 family and friends to come together for support and to build community. We hope this podcast continues to be a place where you can go for the latest CTNNB1 information.